Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, grab your Bibles, put it in your hand, and repeat after me. This is the inspired Word of God. And it teaches me all that I need to know about God. And all that God requires of me. It is profitable to teach me. I can't hear you to reprove me. To correct me. To train me in righteousness. And equip me for every good work. And by the grace of God, I will obey it and be transformed by it. Let's pray. Father, quiet the noise of our busy lives and speak clearly and powerfully from your word. Amen. As Eric said, our preaching series is called Old Testament Family Reunion, and our aim uh, is to look into the lives of Old Testament saints where, who were really just normal people like us. And, uh, but God did some amazing things through these people. And the truth that we want you to know and to live by is that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary kingdom work. Can I preach this morning? My assignment is to look into the life of Nehemiah. And I want to begin with a very well-known question. What is the chief end of man? Earlier this week, my wife was looking through the mail. And all of a sudden, she asked, what is this? Who ordered this? This is not mine. And she held it up and said, this must be yours. And I looked with equal revulsion, and I said, that ain't mine. And she looked again, and she said, it has your name on it. And my heart dropped when she showed me the application for AARP. (laughs) There should be a law that prohibits them from sending you this information until you're ready to stop denying that you're getting old. I know I'm old. And I've been looking and thinking about my life and my death and asking myself, what is the chief end of my life? What's your life's purpose? Or as the world would ask it, what's the one thing you're most willing to die for? I found that people say that they're willing to die for their family and their friends and their freedom and their future, obviously for those that are, of course, left behind, and their faith. How we answer this question determines how we live every day of our lives. And I agree with the Westminster Shorter Catechism that the highest priority in the life of a believer must be to live for the glory of God and the enjoyment of his kingdom rule in our lives. Somebody can say amen. Jesus said it this way, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Paul says it this way, may it 
may, uh, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul considered himself dead to everything in the world so that he might live for the cross. His life's purpose was God's glory and God's kingdom. I refer to this as a kingdom life. And as kingdom believers, like Paul, we all must decide to live for what we say we'll die for. Does that make sense? I begin with this because I would characterize the life of Nehemiah as having a kingdom life. His is a short book. But I honestly think it's one of the most uh, life-changing books in all of Scripture. It would make a wonderful series all by itself. But I have to narrow my focus to this one five-hour sermon. And so, and so let me focus your attention on just three of the many characteristics of a kingdom life that can be learned from the life of Nehemiah. I'm going to give it to you right up front. A kingdom life has saturated prayer. A kingdom life has saturated prayer or is saturated by prayer. A kingdom life has a specific purpose. A kingdom life has a specific purpose. And a kingdom life has sustained productivity. Point one, the first characteristic of a kingdom life is that, li is that life uh, 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 is saturated by prayer. Reading from the NASB, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 reads, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Chrislev, or, or Cheslev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about, uh, and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who survived the captivity, captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, and the ESV says, as soon as I heard, the NA, uh, again, the NASB says, now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The initial response of Nehemiah when he heard the bad news was to pray. He heard from his brother that the people of God were living in great trouble and shame. A modern day interpretation would be to say that they were in a world of hurt. They were living like squalors in their own land. And there was more bad news because the place of God, Jerusalem, its walls and gates were still broken and burned. And so it was clear to Nehemiah that the promise of God, the promise he made to bless Israel was not being fulfilled. I'm going to ask you to stay with me. Amen. So how did Nehemiah respond to all of this bad news? He prayed. Let me paint the picture. It was around 587 B.C. when 
Babylon, under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, invaded Judah and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He plundered and destroyed Solomon's temple, and he burned down the city walls and left Jerusalem in complete ruin. And then later, under the leader of Zerubbabel, some of these exiled Jews who were living in slavery in Babylon were granted permission to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city and the temple. But now, Nehemiah hears this bad news that the work of repairing the wall and rebuilding the city and restoring the temple had stopped. You with me? And so as soon as he hears these words, he sits down heavy with grief and he cries like a baby. He was heartbroken and the Bible says he was in this state for days. He prayed for days. Between the month of Chislev and Nisan, which is close to five months, for five months in response to this bad news, Nehemiah prayed before God. Trying to set you up. How do you respond when you hear bad news? I don't know about you, but often my first response is not prayer. It's what can I do to fix it? How can I help? What can I say? What action can I take to resolve this thing? Let me suggest that the best initial response to bad news is prayer. Nehemiah fasted and he prayed before God. I love this word before because it means face. It means in front of or in the presence of or in the face of. Nehemiah got in God's face about the bad news. He heard about God's people and God's place and God's promise. Listen, that's real prayer. Prayer is getting in God's face and knowing that every time we pray, we're in his presence. And we're bringing in front of him all of those things that make us cry and break our hearts. All that causes us distress and anxiety and fear. And prayer is being absorbed in the attentive presence of God. And it's important to note here that Nehemiah was praying for the people of God, not himself. Also, I want you to notice that he was praying for the place of God and not for his own possessions and for the promise of God and not for his own wants and needs. Prayer is getting in the face of God about the things that are most dear to God and asking him to do what only he can do. And this kind of prayer comes from a heart that is committed to living a kingdom life. Nehemiah prayed before the God of heaven. Are you with me? Are you asleep? You can't go to sleep on stuff like this. Listen, listen to his first prayer. There's about 12 prayers in this small little book. But his first prayer, verse 5, says, And I said... I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive to thine eyes, and uh, I'm sorry, and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, 
which I am praying before thee, before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, that's the people, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remember the word which thou didst his command thy servant Moses saying if you are unfaithful I will scatter you among the people but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them though those of you who have been scattered were in the remotest parts of the heavens I will gather them from there and bring them to the place there's the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell and they, were, and they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem. That's the promise, the promise of redemption that thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Oh, I wish I had time to just preach on this prayer. But let me just point out that he was praying for God's people, for God's place, and, and for God's promise of redemption. The living condition of the people of God was bad news. The fact that the place of God still lie in ruin was bad news. And the realization that in this condition, the promise of God was in jeopardy, that was all bad news. But Nehemiah's greater concern wasn't necessarily for the people or the place or for the promise, but it was more the fact that the condition of these things brought shame and mocking on God himself. See, that's a kingdom perspective. That's a biblical worldview. He cried and prayed because he had a kingdom heart, a heart for God. Listen, it's important you understand this. Understand what I'm saying. Listen, in Genesis 12, God called Abraham to go to a place that he would show him. And then God said that he would make Abram into a great nation of people. And then he made Abraham a promise to bless all of the families of the earth through him. Three things that make up the kingdom of God, a, a people, a place, and a promise. Listen to me. Every Jew understood that they were the people of God and that God's dwelling among them was tied to the place of God and that the promise to bless all of the families of the earth was the promise of the coming Messiah. You still with me? Somebody say amen. amen. So now listen. If any one of these three things failed to happen, it would make God a liar, defame his character, and diminish his glory. You with me? And, and, and this is what Nehemiah was, what, 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 what saw, ha saw happening. And, and so being a good Jew, he loved the people. He loved the place. He loved the promise. But more importantly, he loved God. And so for Nehemiah, 
the protection of the people, the preservation of the place, the proclamation of the promise was about protecting and preserving and proclaiming the glory of God. Listen, that's why he cried. God's glory was at stake. That's why he mourned, because God himself was being mocked. In Galatians 3.8, in his interpretation of Genesis 12, Paul says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That just blows me away. Every time I read it, that God preached the gospel to Abraham. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Did you catch that? Paul said that when God told Abraham about his plans for a people and a place and a promise, that God was actually preaching the gospel to Abraham. So Nehemiah, in a very literal way, was actually praying for the protection, preservation, and proclamation of the gospel. Oh, I didn't make that up. <laughs> I didn't twist the scriptures. That's there. And so why is this important for us today? Because this is an example of the kind of prayer that must saturate our lives today. If we're honest, most of us would admit that we spend more time praying for our kingdom to come than our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And so there's a need for us to understand that this is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. You with me? This is how we pray with his authority. This is how we pray with his heart and in line with his will. This is the kind of prayer that flows from a kingdom life, and that's a life that seeks first the kingdom of God, and this is the life to which Jesus promises to add all of the other things that we need. If you get that, it'll change your life. I've read countless books on prayer because I thought I wanted to learn how to pray. But if the truth be told, I wasn't looking to learn how to pray. I was looking to make God do what I wanted when I wanted him to do it. Can I be honest? What makes prayer feel so difficult is the fight to align our will with his. But prayer is actually quite simple. There's no set formula, no required length of time, no prescribed set of words. The essence of prayer is a knowledge of Scripture. <laughs> because to know Scripture is to know the heart and the will and the desire of God. To know Scripture is to know the God of Scripture to whom we pray. Does that make sense? So my point is that we learn how to pray by learning the Bible. And the more we learn the word, the more effective we are in prayer. Amen. Trying to help somebody today. Because prayer, effective prayer, is simply bringing before God what we know his heart already desires. And the, and, and the way we know what he desires is to know what he has revealed about himself in Scripture. Nehemiah's prayer was saturated with the word of God. In verse 8, look at verse 8. In verse 8 it says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Your Bible says that? He's bringing before God his own words. 
He is in God's face saying, God, you said this. God, this is what you want. God, this is your will. Remember the word that you commanded. We know how to pray by knowing scripture, church. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to pray for healing or jobs or direction or marriages All of these things are real, and they affect our daily lives. And God has not only uh, told us to pray about those things, but he has specifically gifted some of us to pray for those things. Can I get an amen? But here's what I think is important. When we have a heart for the kingdom, we will pray for these things with the end objective being that what we are asking for, the answer to our prayer, how it might enable us and others to be more effective at living a kingdom life for the glory of God. So that means that the goal of our prayers for our marriages is not personal happiness, but how our happy marriages can better glorify God. You with me? Huh? It means that when we pray for healing, we're not just praying for comfort or longevity or vitality, but how in our healthiness we can be more effective at advancing the kingdom of God. Amen? It means that when we pray for our jobs and our profession and our careers and our education and our families and our finances and our future, our motivation for praying is that when these things function according to God's purpose, then he will be glorified and enjoyed in the earth. Oh, somebody ought to clap for that, but that's all right. This is what James had in mind. When James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Nehemiah had a love for God and for his kingdom, which was born out of his love for God's word. And the result was that his life was saturated in prayer. I could stop right there, but I'm not. In chapter 2, verse 4, you'll read, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Look at what happened. So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is a prayer for wisdom and favor. He's standing before the king, and the king is asking, how can I help you? See, I I don't know about you, but I would have blurted something out stupid right there. But Nehemiah's first response was to pray. I think he prayed for the wisdom to ask for the right thing and then for the favor of the king to grant his request. But the point is, Nehemiah prays. Look at Nehemiah 4.4. Hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. This is a prayer for God's righteous judgment and justice in response to Sanballat's and, and Tobias' trash talk and threats. Man, I could talk about some trash talk because they were doing a whole bunch of trash talk. Oh, see, I, my time is going to have to stop me because, I'm. listen, I remember when I used to play basketball with my son. Trayvon, stand up. Stand up. That's my son. That's my son. Listen, when he was about 11, he was already taller than me. That ain't saying much, I know. He was already taller than me, but we used to ball all the time. And he didn't realize that even at that early age, he could beat me. But I would get on the court and I would talk 
so much trash. You can't play. You can't shoot. You are whore. Trayvon would, he would get so mad. And then I would just mop him with the court or mop the court with him. That's what they were doing to uh, uh, Nehemiah and the children. They were talking, if you read it, they were talking all of this trash. So this is a prayer for judgment and justice. Look at Nehemiah 4.9. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a, a protection against them day and night. When it was revealed that the enemy was planning an, a, an attack in order to know what and how to respond, Nehemiah prays. Do you see that? Look at uh, Nehemiah 6 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands in the face of real danger. He didn't let his fears get the best of him. Nehemiah prays. Are you with me? There is one account after another of Nehemiah praying. The book of Nehemiah begins and ends with a prayer. Nehemiah lived. A kingdom life that was saturated in prayer. Did you see that? Did I make it up? Is it in scripture? Y'all can talk. Y'all can talk to me. Point number two. <laughs> a kingdom life has a specific purpose. After telling us about, it's, this, is, this is why I read that passage. After telling us about the bad news. And how he prayed about it, Nehemiah drops a one-liner on us. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. I mean, if you read all of that, you know, he's making this prayer, and then bang, now I was cupbearer to the king. Let me again suggest that Nehemiah's specific kingdom purpose was revealed to him in the midst of this bad situation. It's often through pain and suffering, through difficulties and tragedies and impossible situations that God reveals his specific purpose in our lives. Most commentators like to point out that his position was of, was of great importance and influence. And it was. The king trusted Nehemiah with his life. Nehemiah prepared and tasted everything that the king ate and drank. And if anything had been poisoned, Nehemiah would have been the first to know. But let's not forget that Nehemiah was a lowly slave, a Jew serving a pagan king. He was in captivity, and on any given day, at any given time, his life could have been ended with just a wink from the king. He wasn't a leader. He had no power. He was an ordinary Joe. Sorry, Joe. And as it relates to Jerusalem, that's my son-in-law, Jerusalem, what could he do? He wasn't there. He was in Susa with the king. And so again, he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. This was my job. If I called in sick, then the king couldn't drink that day. If my camel didn't start in the morning, then the king didn't eat. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. That was my position. And it requires me to be on duty every day. So what good could I be to God? What good could I be to Jerusalem? Have you ever felt that way? I don't know how many years Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, but I don't think that he had any idea 
that his secular position had a kingdom purpose. Mm. Look at Nehemiah. Uh, uh, it says, in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is not but sadness of heart. Then Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah was sad. He wasn't faking it. There's nothing in Scripture that says that his sadness was a ploy to win the king's sympathy. He had been weeping and mourning and fasting and praying for five months. The king's assessment was correct. It was sadness of heart. Today we would say he was depressed. Listen, no one came to serve in the presence of the king, consumed or distracted with concerns for their own personal lives and affairs. When you were in his presence, you were on duty. It was all about the king. So when the king recognized Nehemiah's sadness, Nehemiah was afraid for his life. Does that make sense? Now, I was cupbearer <laughs> to the king. Your position, your job, whatever it is that you do for a living, you do it for the glory of God. Your secular position has a kingdom purpose. And it's important to know because you're important to the kingdom of God. Whether you work or not, you have a specific purpose in the kingdom. Now, don't get me in trouble. I didn't say you don't have to work. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For everyone... For even when we were with you, when we give you this command, if anyone, I mean, sorry, he says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And 2 Timothy 5, 8 says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So listen, don't quit your day job. But we must all begin to view our lives from this kingdom perspective so that we see everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. This cupbearer was not insignificant in the kingdom of God. He had a specific purpose in the kingdom, and God had positioned him right where he was so that in God's timing, Nehemiah would fulfill God's purpose. Good. I offer to you that the same is for us. God has positioned you right where he wants you to be in order to fulfill his kingdom purpose in your life. So what you must ask yourself, thank you, that goes to him. What you've got to ask yourself, what we all have to ask ourselves is how can we use where we are and what you do, your position, your power, your influence, all of your experience, your gifts, your skills and talents to make the greatest impact for the kingdom of God? There's a specific work in the kingdom for you to do. And look at this, Nehemiah 4, 6. So we built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together to half its heights, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah 4.6. The people had a mind 
to work. That means that they had a heart for the work they were doing. In chapter 3, Nehemiah shares how one person built a specific gate and how another laid the beams and others hung the doors and the bolts and the bars in place and still others made repairs to various sections of the wall and others restored specific areas of the wall and sections of the city and many of them did the work of rebuilding a section of the wall that was right in front of their own homes. Read it. They had a mind to work, I wonder. Do we? Do you have a mind to work? What section of the wall has God placed you uh, and gifted you to do here at Covenant Grace? Listen, no one is exempt from serving on the wall. There is a section of the wall right in front of your house. What that means for us today is that there is a section of ministry where God has uniquely positioned and gifted you to do work. There is a section of the wall in children's ministry. There's a section of the wall in hospitality. There's a section of the wall in the deacon ministry, in the teaching ministry, in the outreach ministry. Maybe your section of the wall is planting churches. Where is your section of the wall and are you or do you have a mind to work? Can I add this for free? Stop the clock. <laughs> Sometimes what pulls us out of depression is taking our minds off of self to focus on building our section of the wall. Nehemiah was depressed. But he set his heart on completing the work of building the kingdom of God. It could be that the healing you're seeking might be found as you work on your section of the wall. The things we most seek from God. Healing, wholeness, wellness, prosperity, fulfillment, significance is not found by looking within ourselves. For most of us, that only produces more anxiety and frustration. But when we seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom itself, the work of the kingdom, often becomes the very answer to the thing we seek. <laughs> Got an amen crew right here. We need you. All of you. We hurt with you. We feel with you. We're praying for you. You're not alone, but we need you on the wall. And just maybe, if you're able to allow God to work through you, that thing that you most need from him, whatever it might be, that thing that you most need him to do for you, it may just be found as you set your mind to do the work of your section of the wall. The people had a mind to work. Listen, they still had issues. They still had families to care for. There was illnesses and needs and desires and plans for the future, but the people had a mind to work. Listen, if there had remained one breach in the wall, if one gap was left unrepaired in front of someone's home, the entire city could have been overtaken. But with everyone working together, serving together to fulfill their specific purpose. In the kingdom, they finished the wall. Nehemiah 6, 15 through 16 says this. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul 
in 52 days, I probably destroyed that pronunciation, when all our enemies heard of it, and all of the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. <laughs> in 52 days, they finished the work with the help of God. God used a cupbearer a slave, an ordinary man to accomplish his specific purpose. So what specific purpose does God want to accomplish through you? I'm going to end right here. Point three. You know when a preacher says that, he still has 15 minutes, right? <laughs> Final point. A kingdom life is a life of sustained productivity. The goal of the enemy's attacks in our lives, the spiritual warfare, even in many cases of the physical illness and mental depression, they're often designed to make us stop work that God has gifted us to do. That is what Nehemiah and the people were experiencing. And our enemy said, that, that, look at 411, and our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. The enemy wants to put a stop to the work. Over and over and over, the enemy came at Nehemiah trying to get them to stop working. But here's what Nehemiah does. He drops another one-liner on us. In Nehemiah 6.3, it says this, And I sent messenger to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. We, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down uh, 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 to you? I'm having fun up here all by myself. <laughs> Nehemiah said, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. The enemy wants you to come down. He wants to take you into the land of oh no and do you harm. But like Nehemiah, our response must be, oh no, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. I will not quit. I will not stop. I put my hands to the plow and I won't turn back. I will not let go. I'm doing a good work and I can't come down. Am I too loud? That's all right. The building of the kingdom lies, listen, is good work because it glorifies God and that produces sustained productivity. Listen, we must be sure that we're building kingdom lives, meaning that we're building kingdom marriages and kingdom families and kingdom careers and a kingdom church because we all have personal limits, right? Some go further than others, but there's only so much any of us can take before we will quit and come down. Can I be honest? So going back to my opening question, when we're willing to die for the kingdom, when we're doing a good work of building kingdom lives for the glory of God, this work takes us beyond our personal limits because it is a work empowered by the Spirit of God, and he's the one that sustains our productivity. Thank you. <laughs> Praise God. This is what I mean by sustained productivity. The resolve and the ability to accomplish the good work of God in spite of all opposition, difficulties, and attacks. With a view of God and his kingdom, when we want to give up, our response must be like Nehemiah, I'm doing a good work 
and I can't come down. When the enemy gets busy in your life and he gets all in your head and you're ready to give up, you have to remind yourself that you're doing a good work of building a kingdom and then say to the enemy, <laughs> what? I'm doing a good work and I can't come down. When you're ready to give up on your marriage, I'm doing a good work and I can't come down. Like in Nehemiah 4, uh, verse 10, when the rubbish in the church makes it feel impossible to complete your assignment, remind yourself, I'm doing a good work and I can't come down. When we understand, I'm preaching, this is what y'all, this is, this is preaching y'all, you know that, right? When we understand that our life's work is for the kingdom, we will not allow anything to hinder our sustained productivity. We see this, sustained productivity in chapter 4. I am honestly about to be done, I think. <laughs> After several attacks designed to stop the work, look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, so we built the wall. <laughs> and then in verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7 says, the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem went on. And then in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, then all of us returned to the wall, each to his own work. And then in four, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 21, so we carried on the work. That's sustained Productivity And the reason the people were able to keep working was because Nehemiah had focused their attention on God. In Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18, it says, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we're in? That Jerusalem is desolate and that its gates burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also, and also about the king's word, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. And in verse 20, it says, so the God of heaven will give us success. <laughs> yeah, you need a mic. And so, what seemed like an impossible task, in the face of dangerous opposition, the people had a mind to work because their mind was focused on God. Listen, to focus on God's glory creates sustained productivity. That's why we must keep our eyes on Jesus, the author, finisher of our faith. If you no longer feel like serving, if you've allowed others to, to cause you to stop serving the kingdom, may I ask you, where's your focus? Listen, God gave us his word because in his word, we can focus on beholding the glory of the king. king the King James Version says this, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory, uh, 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 the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we focus intently in the word, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Listen, so listen, maybe you're struggling to sustain your worship. 
If you would focus intently in the word on the beauty of God, in all of his splendor, in all of his greatness, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his power, your worship will be sustained. Listen, listen, if you're struggling to sustain your love for others, what you need to do is focus intently in the word and see the glory of the cross in all of his bloodiness and to see again the love that God demonstrated for you, that will sustain your love for others. Are you struggling to sustain your walk of righteousness? What you need to do is focus intently in the word and see the glory of heaven. Oh, listen, see the streets of gold. See the angels flying back and forth singing, holy, holy, holy. See the new heaven. See the new earth where there is no more crying and no more death and no more mourning and no more pain. If we keep our focus on the glory of God, it will sustain our desire to live holy because we know He's coming back, and we will be with him forever. A kingdom life focuses on the glory of God, and that creates sustained productivity. Listen, Nehemiah erected a wall to preserve a people, a Jewish nation, Israel. And this wall, both physically and spiritually, separated this people from all others. This was done to prepare a holy people for the coming Messiah. Nehemiah erected a wall to protect the place, Jerusalem, a special place where the presence of God dwelt among his people. Nehemiah erected a wall to proclaim a promise that behind that wall was a people through whom God would bless all of the families of earth. Nehemiah lived for this kingdom. And as a result, his life was sustained, in, uh, saturated in prayer. His life had a special purpose and sustained productivity. But listen, when the fullness of time <laughs> had come, God sent his son and he erected a cross that broke down in his flesh that dividing wall. Oh, if I could dance, I would dance right now. Jesus erected a cross to preserve a people, his church, a chosen race, a royal peace priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Jesus erected a cross to create a place where God would dwell in us. Or do you not know that you are the temple of God and that his spirit of God dwells in you? Jesus erected a cross to proclaim a promise, the good news of the gospel, a promise that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is through the cross that Jesus completed the good work and established the kingdom of God for the glory of God in the hearts of man. Our communion table reminds us that we are kingdom people, that the place where the king rules is within us, and that we are heirs to the promise of eternal life. For the kingdom believer, the bread, even though it's gluten-free, <laughs> and the juice, unfermented as it is, it graciously nourishes our kingdom lives so that we may continue the good work of advancing the kingdom of God. After I pray, as our praise team leads us in worship, you may come to the table at your convenience. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Teach us how to saturate our lives in prayer and reveal to us the special purpose that you've gifted and called us to and sustain us in the work of advancing your kingdom for your glory on earth. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.